Please turn with me to Luke's Gospel in chapter 12 as we continue. We're catching Jesus in mid-ministry here in Luke chapter 12. This section very much is a, uh, a unit. There's a lot going on here uh, that is well connected. We've mentioned that before. We are planning to have the Lord's Supper and celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, so our intention is to prepare ourselves for that great event. I trust our text will help us do just that. We're going to pick it up with where we left off uh, last time uh, in Luke chapter 12. We're going to pick it up with verse 21, the last verse that we looked at last time, because Jesus is still really teaching on the same thing. And I want to tie in that with what we have. You remember the parable of the rich fool that we looked at last time. So our section begins with verse 22, but remembering that it ties in with the previous section, we'll start reading with the last verse of that in verse 21. So is he that lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. He said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, be not anxious for your life. What you shall eat, neither for the body, what you shall put on. The life is more than food, and the body is more than raiment. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse or barn. God feeds them. How much more are you better than the fowls? And which of you, by being anxious, can add to his stature one cubit? And there's various translations of that particular phrase. It either refers to stature of height or length of life. And you can go both ways, and I'm not going to get into that argument today. If you then are not able to do the thing which is least, or are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, neither spin. And yet I say to you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If ye then... If then God so clothed the grass, which is today in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And seek not what ye shall eat and what ye shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knows that you have need of these things. But rather, seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have, give alms, provide yourselves bags which grow not old, a treasure in the heavens that fails not, where no thief approaches, neither moth corrupts. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And we'll stop there. But obviously the lesson goes on uh, from that point. Thank you, Father, that we can be together today. Help me to speak and each of us to hear your most precious word on a very vital, important subject. In, our na- in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we come to this section of Luke, uh, we're reminded that our text is part of a sustained response to a public demand by one of the thousands in the crowd to Jesus. And Jesus was interrupted in his teaching in verse 13 by this man that pulled the whole crowd off into his own personal problem. We've already been uh, there and looked at that. And that, uh, that, uh, that interruption by that man invited the Lord's response that we looked at in 14 to 21, that uh, the rebuke that he gave the individual and then the great principle of life that he enunciated and then the parable that illustrated the principle. We've already seen that. And as we uh, think through all of this, we reminded Jesus spoke to the man first himself in verse 14 and then second to the crowd that witnessed and heard the interruption in 15 and 21. Now, that crowd 
was made up of that man, possibly his brother, uh, and the disciples, and uh, who knows how many thousands of other people that weren't disciples but were just there. But in verse 22, he turns from the man and he turns from the crowd and speaks specifically to his disciples. Now, no doubt, everybody else is listening. Everybody else heard what he said to them. But he's he's addressing his disciples directly, even though it's being overheard by everyone else. I hope you get that. It's a small distinction, but it's important. So our text is part of a sustained response to a public demand by one of thousands in the crowd who interrupted Jesus' teaching, and that sustained response is still going on. And the second thought here, as we prepare to look at it, is our, this is, again, directed to the disciples specifically. The teaching here that we have in mind is some of the most important teaching that Christians have in the Bible. I am not sure this can be overrated. And remember, (coughs) it follows that anonymous foolish man's uh, actions described in the parable. But I want you to know, this this is not a section on how to be saved. I want to repeat that. You don't get saved by seeking the kingdom first. You don't get saved by any of the things Jesus is saying here in this section. Uh, this is not a salvation verse. Uh, it's, it's a verse that some uh, might take out of context or misunderstand. But this was spoken to those who are already disciples. Is everybody with me? Now, I'm not saying every disciple is necessarily saved. Judas was a disciple. He wasn't saved. But these were those who had already professed faith. And so this is not a section dealing specifically with salvation or how to be saved by putting the kingdom first or anything like that. It's kind of important uh, to just note that. But noting that, this is still a vital section of Scripture. William Hendrickson said it would be difficult to exaggerate the significance of the passage before us. And I think he's right. And I would say that for verses 29 and 30 that Hendrickson was specifically mentioning, but also 22 to 34, which is all around it. Very, very important practical stuff. And F.F. Bruce said here, Jesus was stating a law of life when he said that where one's treasure is, there the heart will be also. Um, If you're invested in a particular stock and the stocks go down or the stocks go up, you've got a special place in your heart for that stock you're investing in. If you have a rental property in another town and there's a disaster in that town, obviously you're going to think about the neighborhood where that rental property is in. So where our, our heart follows this, where our treasure is, our heart will be. It's a, just a basic fact of life, isn't it? I have to confess, we were in Ireland when the, when the uh, tornado hit the plains. My daughter in New York City said, Dad, she called us, tornadoes hit the plains. I said, what? I'm sitting in a motel lobby in Ireland. And I thought, what did I think about? I thought about Athens Bible Church and the people might be in it. I thought about my house. And I thought, I had to, I mean, that would be the first thing I was thinking about, right? Because where where your treasure is, that's where your heart is, you know. Your heart is where your treasure is. Now, it doesn't mean I didn't care about everybody else in the plains. But that's the first thing came to my mind. And then I thought about the nursing home, and I thought about other people, and, you know, it just kind of went on from there. And then I started thinking about individuals in the plains that might have affected. 
that we know from our church and stuff. But Jesus is taught, teaching here something really, really important. And this, F.F. Bruce again said, he's stating a law of life when he said that where one's treasure is, there the heart will be also. Most of us have somewhere in our toolbox, even if we have a very limited toolbox, mine's fairly limited, you might have a set of wrenches, but almost every toolbox will have an adjustable wrench. Most of us have an adjustable wrench in our toolboxes that will fit multiple bolts, multiple situations. And in this particular verse, I, it's, this section's like an adjustable wrench. <laughs> it really is. It fits many ministerial situations. You can, we can use this section as we minister to other people who are in many different ways. And it's not there aren't other sections of scripture that won't do the same. But this one, for instance, if I want to disciple somebody, good place to go, right? Somewhere in your discipleship, you ought to be going here. Uh, if you do a one-on-one or something like that, some baby Christian you're trying to teach, this is an awful good place about priorities, right? How about someone who's overcome with anxiety or worry about stuff? Is that a good place? counseling somebody with anxiety and worry how to do it. There's other places, but this is certainly one. How about worldview? What if somebody's got a conflated worldview? They, they're mixing Christian worldview and uh, a fallen, fallen worldview. Verse 30 would be a very good place to go for all these things do the nations of the world seek after. That's how they live. not how we're to live. We're to have a different world view, including on how we use our finances. We're not to be conformed to this world. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. How about marriage counseling? Yeah, part of my premarital counseling is on finances. And it's very good that both the couples come together on that matter, right? I remember a couple very well. Both were Christians. And uh, when we got to the financial section, it, the counseling exhibited that they had two different ideas about the lifestyle they were going to live. You know, I asked, what kind of furniture are you going to have? What kind of car are you going to drive? They couldn't come together. And they didn't get married, which was good. <laughs> so there's questions that people need to face about life. And this is a great section to deal with the Christian view of finances. And so it's very helpful in uh, premarital counseling or marriage counseling when things are wrong. How about personal soul searching? Not thinking about other people, but even each of us individually about what is what are my priorities? What are the what's the most important things to me? Have I got off the beam here a little bit or something? A personal deep diving and soul searching, that'd be a pretty good place. Because often we get off in our view of things, finances, money. How about the life of the church? How about a church's issues? Um, very important. And sometimes the whole church is off. I think this would be a good monkey wrench for the health and wealth people. I'd like to throw this monkey wrench into their church. Because they are as off as they can be. By the way, a monkey wrench is a figurative expression for an adjustable wrench that's used for different sizes of pipe and stuff. You throw a monkey wrench into something, it's something that disrupts. Isn't that a figurative expression? There's some things that need to be disrupted because they're wrong. (laughs) They're wrong. They're off. And we are supposed, by our alternative lifestyle to the world around us, 
to disrupt their comfort zone or even to disrupt each other's comfort zone when we get off and we start taking first things second or third and third things first when our priorities get off. And verse 30 is very important. After all these things, the nations of the world seek. The majority of the people on this planet live and die with a wrong view of stuff. Uncorrected. And we all live in a world where we earn our bread by the sweat of our brow. That's Genesis the early chapters of Genesis, right? And if you earn your bread by the sweat of your brow, you have to give some thought to that. This is not a passage against forethought or planning or personal effort or time. You have to give some time of thinking to how you're going to make your living. Most people go to university so they can do that. And part of it's financial. So the Lord's not saying give no thought to those things. He's simply saying no anxious thought. There's a difference between giving prayerful, careful thought and anxious thought. An anxious thought that dominates our minds and hearts to the point we have no interest in God and His kingdom. All we can think about is How am I going to feed myself and clothe myself and everything else that's included in that? So the Christian and the church uh, is supposed to be disruptive. We are by our very lifestyle as a church and our lifestyle as individuals to challenge the status quo. I hope we can spruce up our building. I I wouldn't mind even adding on to the building, but I don't believe in building unnecessarily fancy church buildings. Now, if God gives it to us, we'll build a nice building. Not against that. But even in our building, we should somehow reflect moderation and not the extravagance of the world. Remember the serpent got Adam and Eve off and got them thinking about the tree and the apple and eating apart from God. Just left God out of that, except that God's being too strict. You don't need God to tell you what to do. Here it is. And I don't know if it was an apple or a peach or a pear or what it was. There's arguments about that that nobody knows. That has nothing to do with it. The whole point was he got Adam and Eve both focused on food without the provider of food. And he's still getting away with it. The the unsaved world, Ephesians chapter 2, walks after the course of Satan. He dominates them. Harry Ironside said on our text, No man can really put the world beneath his feet until he has seen a better world above his head. And he quotes Colossians 3, Seek those things that are above. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. And Daryl Bach said, Jesus calls for a single issue to be the disciples' major concern. God's kingdom. God will care for the rest. Put that first. And the world is filled with millions of people that are laser focused on providing security for themselves. It's a man-made security. It's a temporal security. Then their investments, they never get past retirement. You know, you go to investment counselor, one of the first things they're going to say is, what do you want to retire on? Right? What do you expect? What kind of income do you want to have when you... You retire. It's a legitimate question for an investment counselor. What, and most people, when they, when they uh, plan their finances, they think about, I have to get through retirement. And that's legitimate to a point, right? You want to support yourself, that's biblical. You want to support your mate, 
after you're gone, you want, you want to be a responsible person, not have the church burdened. That's legitimate. We have to do that. But what about after retirement? After retirement? What about after retirement? Do you realize Jesus is talking here about investments that can give you dividends after retirement? That's after he returns and after we're in heaven. It's very interesting. And if you just plan for retirement, it's stunningly short-sighted. If a couple plans, oh, I need to get my kids through college, or I need to, I need to buy this house and get it paid for, and they don't do anything else, they never think beyond that, you'd say, that's short-sighted. You've got to go beyond that at some point. You might have to focus on that when you're 20 and 30, but you better start focusing on something beyond that at some point, right? You better start focusing on retirement. Well, Jesus takes us beyond retirement. And he, he's talking about treasure in heaven. He's talking about the bank of heaven. He's talking about dividends that don't pay till you get there. Of course, if you're not going there, there's going to be you don't have any you won't have any dividends there so you better be sure you're saved but saved people ought to be investing in eternity because our last parable just told us you can't take it with you so you can be penny wise and pound foolish you you invest good for this life you've got many goods for many years and take your ease but you haven't thought beyond that Because you just invested all your money and all your thoughts in this life, even retirement. So what the Lord is doing is reminding us there's something beyond retirement for the Christian to invest in. And it's a fascinating section, isn't it? And it's uh, stunningly and short-sighted for a Christian not, and inconsistent for a Christian not to consider that. Now, in this section, there are several things to help us. There are several things to help us. Verse 32 reminds us that we're God's little flock. That means God is our shepherd. And verse 32 also reminds us that God is our Father. We have a shepherd who takes care of us in this life. We have a father whose home we're going to in the next life. God is my shepherd, verse 32. God is my father, verse 32. And my father and my shepherd and my father is also my king. There's a kingdom coming and he's the king of it. So God is my shepherd. God is my father. God is my king. That's the theological basis for everything he's saying. It's the obvious presupposition to all the exhortations he gives in verse 32 to 34. It's a theology that is simple and practical. It's a theology that produces a a practice that is theologically based and theologically driven and motivated. And how is it all connected to the previous section? And I think some Bible, te- in my mind, some Bible teachers, even good ones, have missed it here. Verse 16 to 21 describes someone who is not rich towards God. And that was the parable of the rich man who wasn't rich towards God. Verses 22 to 34 is the section we are in. And some think that this is uh, people who are different than the rich man. He had an abundance, and the Jesus' disciples were largely poor people who worked from day to day. And, of course, that's true. But I, I, I don't think the worry here and the anxiety here is because they had to go hand to mouth. I think 22 to 34 is about those who have the potential to be rich towards God. 
16 to 21 describe someone who's not rich towards God. 22 to 34 are describing disciples that can be rich towards God if they don't give in to worry. If they don't go into anxiety. If they don't strive to just be comfortable in this world. If they learn how to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And the whole point about this eager seeking is we have something better to do than the unsaved had to do. And with our minds and with our lives. And that seems to be the flow of this as I see it. And so, especially as we get down to, after everything he said, in contrast to the nations of the world, where he says in verse 30, For all these things do the nations of the world seek after. Your Father knows you have need of these things. But rather, seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to do what? Give you the kingdom. Your heavenly Father, your shepherd, is the king. He's going to give you the kingdom. You've got it made. That's not an inheritance you can lose, like most inherit earthly inheritances, or somebody can take it away from you. That one's coming. You can afford to be generous. You can afford to be sacrificial. You can afford a few years of uh, serious suffering. The man that started uh, the voice of the martyrs, I can't pull his name out of my head right now. Somebody will help me, I'm sure. Um, he was in Romania, and they put him in solitary confinement. He had one piece of bread per day. Lost 58 pounds, but he survived. God provided for him under the most intense persecution. Sorry, I'm not remembering his name. Should have written it down. And God used him. And Marxism was destroyed in Romania. And he came back and was able to preach in all the churches. He stood for the Lord. Wormbrand. Yeah, Wormbrand, that's right. Richard Wormbrand. And his wife also, she suffered. But God provided for them both. And Jesus is teaching a, 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 a theology here that's simple and practical. And it's theologically based. You have God as your shepherd and your father and your king. And you're going to get the kingdom. So keep that in mind if they take everything else away. You're not going to be permanently wiped out. Even if they take your life. You just get to enjoy it earlier. Now let's go back uh, to the first part of this section. And uh, see what Jesus says. And he's going to teach us to be bird watchers. Apparently Jesus was a bird watcher. I'm becoming, I'm becoming friends on Facebook with some of my high school uh, people that I knew, and one fellow is a bird watcher, and I'm astounded the pictures he's putting on his Facebook. I'm enjoying them. Well, Jesus was a bird watcher. He was. And it says in verse 22, Therefore I say to you, be not anxious for your life, what you'll eat, neither for the body, what you shall put on. For life, the life is more than food, the body is more than raiment. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouses or barn, and God feeds them. How much more are you better than the fowls? That's a pretty basic thing, right? Most of us put in 40 hours, 50 hours, 60 hours a week. We work hard. We earn our bread by the sweat of our brow. And if we're retired, we still find plenty to do. But... And we conceal ourselves lazy, especially if we learn to work early in life, if we weren't about something. But the Lord here is uh, saying, consider those birds. Consider those ravens. Better consider them. 
And later he's going to say, better consider the flowers of the field. Let them be your professors of divinity. Let them teach you something. The flowers. My father-in-law, Linda's dad, was a graphic designer. And he loved to paint and draw. He was very good at it. He did a lot of work for GM and Ford because he was up in Toledo. But his passion was the Metro Parks. He loved to do murals for the Metro Parks of all kinds of critters and flowers. He was very, very good at drawing things. I've got some of them. I've got some of his birds and squirrels and flowers in my living room, his pictures. He had an artistic eye. He had an artistic eye, and that artistic eye helped him to see things deeper than some of us would see. But he wasn't a believer, so he didn't have a believer's eye. And that is a great sadness. But Jesus is talking about not just having an artistic eye, and that's something not all of us will ever have an artistic eye. Some people just beat us down, just beat us on that. I remember I was with my father-in-law, and we were by a river, the Maumee River, and a, a group of uh, a, a group of uh, ducks just flew over us in a V formation. And he said, "Boy, look at that! That's a picture." He just saw he saw things. He, as an artist, would see it. And to me, it's just a bunch of birds flying over here. I like that. But it didn't strike me the beauty of it like it hit him. But our Lord is, wants us to look at the creatures that God provides for and the flowers that God provides for as an illustration of how God will provide for us. Obviously, if He takes care of them, He'll take care of us. If He cares about feeding them, He'll care about feeding us. That's why I don't mind that Linda feeds the birds and the deer, because I know if she feeds them, she'll probably feed me. (laughs) So, what are some of Jesus' observations here? He starts out with ravens. Ravens do not work. Ravens do not build barns. Ravens don't sow. Ravens don't reap. They're ravens. And yet God feeds them. In fact, He even used one of them to feed Elijah. So God feeds ravens. And the point here is people are more valuable than birds. Now, some people don't like that. That's a politically incorrect thing to say in some circles, right? Because some some think critters are more important than people. But the fact is, critters, even though they're valuable to God, are not made in the image of God. And they are not, we are, if God, it's an argument from less to better, if God feeds the critters, he'll feed us. Because God regularly feeds critters, thousands, millions of them, that are less valuable than you and I are to him. You are worth more than birds. And Jesus Christ did not die for the sins of a bird or any other animal. You know why? Because animals are amoral. They don't sin. Animals don't sin. That's why we can have animal sacrifice. Now, I know there's unclean birds and clean birds and ravens are an unclean bird, but that, that had to do for the ceremonies of the sacrifice. But my point is, Animals don't sin. There's no hell for animals. Animals don't sin. Cows, sheep, ducks, giraffes, they don't sin. They're amoral. They do suffer the effects of man's sin. That's why a lot of ravens eat carrion. Not just carrion. I'm sure they eat other things or they wouldn't have been a vehicle for feeding Elijah. But the point is, ravens don't work. They just eat. (laughs) They don't work. They just eat. 
They don't have a job. They don't have to build any barns. They don't have to sow. They don't have to reap. They just eat. God feeds them. Providentially, He feeds them. Now, the point here is not be like a bird and just sit around and wait for God to bring the food to you. No. <laughs> he doesn't say that. That's not His point. The point is, He's created birds that will live this way and need to be provided for this way, and He takes care of them as birds. He can take care of us as humans. We're on a different level. We're expected to work. We're expected to work hard on a fallen world. The ravens don't work. They can't work. They just eat. You know, Adam and Eve didn't have, they worked, but not like they had to work after the fall, right? After the fall, work became difficult. They trimmed the garden, the trees, and ate the food. Very minimal work. And Jesus goes to the lilies of the field, and he says, they don't labor, they don't spin, and they're clothed better than Solomon was. How does this how does this shockingly condemn people that are occupied with their clothes? To them, the latest fashion is the biggest thing. I've got to have it. And all that stuff. And what he's saying in verse 27, Consider the lilies, they spin not, and yet I say that Solomon all his glory was not arrayed like one of those. And flowers don't even have a very long lifespan, yet God closes them. So if He clothes flowers, the grass of the field makes it beautiful. You're more valuable than the grass. You're more valuable than the lilies. God who cares for them will care for you. He's our Father. He's our Shepherd. He's our King. We are His children. We are His flock. And we are His subjects. And the Lord is not advocating laziness, idleness about our work life and responsibilities to earn our bread by the sweat of our brow. He's simply saying we got better things to think about than just that. We have to put some thought into it, but not be obsessed or worried. Obtaining food and clothing is never to be the great object of our lives or the sole object of our thoughts. It's not the chief object of our existence. It's not the chief objection, object, uh, uh, object of our lives. Alexander McLaren put it this way, God made the needs and he'll send the supply. I like to go back to Genesis because so often in the Bible when you have issues, you can go back there and see things. I'd like to go back to Cain and Abel in my mind. I know you know the section in Genesis 4. Pretty obvious Cain was overoccupied with his chosen field of labor. And pretty proud that he was a good farmer. Pretty proud of that. And it got him in trouble. But Cain was underoccupied about spiritual things. He was a very good farmer, but he was a very poor worshiper. And Abel brought a better offering than Cain. Cain brought an offering and he was real proud about it. But it wasn't the offering God demanded. And then you remember after he killed Abel, God said, no more farming for you, Cain. The blood of your brother is crying out from the ground. It's not going to bring forth to you. Your farming days are over. So he went and built a city. He had to get... Had to support himself some way. But he not just went out and built a city, he went out from the presence of the Lord. You know, when we fail to please God and God corrects us, it's very easy, very, very easy to say, I just can't do this, I'll just get away from God. Instead of take the correction that God wants for us. Cain is not our model in any way. Woe to them, they've gone the way of Cain. Abel is our model. By faith, Abel offered up a better sacrifice than Cain. And Abel was a giver of the best he had. He, 
Cain brought an offering, but Abel brought the first fruits. Firstborn, excuse me. He brought the he brought the best he had. He was giving God the best. Turn to Genesis 4. I kind of blew that when I was talking about it. He brought the firstlings of the flock. Genesis 4, 2. And she again bore his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground in process, both legitimate uh, professions, ways of earning your your keep. And in process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering to the Lord. Nothing said about first fruits, just fruit of the ground. Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect to Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said, Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fall? If you do well, shall you not be accepted? You don't have to be not accepted. Get with the program, Cain. And if you don't do well, sin lies at the door, and unto you shall be its desire, and thou shalt rule over him. So Cain's not the model. Abel is. Abel was a giver. It cost him more than it cost Cain. And of course, there's other reasons his offering was better than Cain's. Abel's faith was part of that. Cain wasn't offering in faith. And the, the death of the animal was part of it. But he brought the firstlings of the flock. Now, how does all this relate to the Lord's Supper? How does all this relate that we've been talking about? Observe the ravens. Observe the um, the lilies. Uh, seek first the kingdom. Seek not what you'll eat or what you'll drink. Neither be of doubtful mind. Don't be like everybody else. The nations seek these things. Your father knows you have need of these things. Seek the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give your kingdom. Sell what you have. Don't be afraid to be a giver. Sell what you have. And give alms. Provide yourselves bags that grow not old and treasure in heaven that fail not, where no thief approach, neither moth corrupts. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. How does all this relate to what we're trying to uh, do with the Lord's Supper. Number one. Um, as we come and think about all this, these are the teachings of the one who shed his blood for us. Let's remember who's talking. Who's doing this teaching? He's the one that died for us. He's the one that paid for our sins. He's the one that paid a bill we couldn't pay for. These are the teachings of the one who shed his blood for us. This is his worldview, his revelation to his disciples on the way to the cross about how we should live and how we should not live. And we ought to be saying to him, you paid my biggest bill that I could never pay. Whatever you say goes. Your view of life becomes my view of life. You set my priorities. And isn't that what 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 is all about? Turn with that with me there. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ constrains us because we judge that if one died for all, that all were dead. And he died for all, that they who live should not henceforth live to themselves, but unto him who died for them and rose again. Pretty basic stuff, right? So it's not my role to set my own agenda about 
my life and how I'm going to spend it. I, I, I give, that's his role for me. These are the teachings of him. So these, we, we should be following that. Second, the Lord Jesus Christ himself lived like this. This is his example of his whole life. He was a giver to others. He left heaven. He left the glories of heaven and the riches of heaven. He who was rich became poor that you through his poverty might be made rich. He grew up in Nazareth. Which was not necessarily a glamorous place. He lived as a carpenter. And then he became an itinerant preacher. And he, he left the glories of heaven. He who was in the form of God took upon himself the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in the likeness of man, he became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. He did all that. He trusted his heavenly Father, not just for his clothes and food, but for his very life. His last words on the cross, we'll be teaching on them soon. Psalm 31 was quoting David, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The Lord Jesus trusted his heavenly Father, not just for his clothes and food, but for his life. His eye was on the coming kingdom, and he was not trying to save himself, he sacrificed himself. You know, when you give to others, you're poor financially because of it. Right? If you give to a mission project, you can't spend that that on a boat. Or a new car, or a new whatever. Or a new suit. Giving does that. You're poor financially in one sense. Because you gave. But if you keep it, you're still going to lose it. Say, I can't give. I can't afford to give. I'm not going to give. I'm, I'm going to, this is my money I earned it. I'm going to. All right, when you die, who's this going to be? You can't take it with you. You lost it. You invested it. You made a bunch of money. You did well in the stock market. You had a lot of rental properties. And you die. And whose will these things be? Not yours. You're gone. But what if you take some of that and give to missions or helping the poor or whatever you do with it? You're putting it in the bank of heaven. You can't use it here. It's gone. But when you get to heaven, you get it back. So that's what I'm talking about beyond retirement. What are you sending ahead? Luke 16. Look look there. Luke 16. Jesus was looking ahead for the joy that was set before Him. He endured the shame, despising, uh, he, despising the cross and all the ignominy that went with it. We should be looking ahead. And Luke 16.8 says, And the Lord commanded the unjust steward, commended the unjust steward because he'd done wisely for the sons of the age are in their generations wiser than the sons of light and I say make to yourselves friends by means of money of unrighteousness that when it fails they may receive you into everlasting habitations what's that? that's the opposite of health and wealth health and wealth churches say give money to me so you can live like me and if you give money to God, you're going to be richer here. That's not what Jesus is teaching. If you give money to missions or to poor, you'll be richer here. You might be. I've known people that were big givers that God gave them more to give because they were givers. But that's not, and they gave that away. But that's not the point. The point here is you're sending on ahead for the next life. Now, I don't know what this receiving into everlasting habitations is, but the point is, I'd like to meet some people that Athens Bible Church money supported a missionary that gave them the gospel. And they'd say, glad to have you up here. We appreciate what you did. So this is the picture. So what is the rate of return we're expecting? 
financial counselors ask that. Is this a long-term or short-term investment? When are you going to want it back? How much risk can you tolerate? All those questions are viable for investments in this life that we need to make for our retirement and we need to make for old age and for our children and everything else for to get something. But how about putting it in, something in the book of uh, Bank of Heaven? Because if we really want a good rate of return, you can't go in a better place. I spread my risk. We've got in, we've got some money in the stock market and mutual uh, mutual funds. Is that what you call them? You spread your risk, but still it's gone down. And hopefully it'll go back up. But what if it doesn't? Well, I lost it. But you put something in heaven's bank. Just keeps accruing. <laughs> it just keeps going. Very interesting. R.K. Hughes mentioned in his writings on this, he mentioned seeing a new boat, a really fancy new millionaire's, billionaire's boat with Matthew 6.33 on it. And the implication was, if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness like I did, you can have a boat like mine. But that's not the point. <laughs> the point is, I may give up a boat. I may not be able to afford a rowboat because I want to give the money to missions. Now, if you got a rowboat or any kind of boat, I don't, I'd like to take a ride in it. I don't mind, but I don't think the Lord does either. But the point is this. There's investments to make, right? Now, other people will, maybe they'll get a big house and they'll have a nice car, two or three cars or whatever, but they use them for God. That's another way, right? If you look at your possessions, it doesn't mean you've got to give it all away. And if you have rental properties and money in the stock market, you're somehow sinful. That's not what he's saying. He's simply saying is use what you have for God, right? And if God gives you a big house, have a Bible study in it, right? That's, a good, that's investing. That's the same as giving it away. Now, go to Matthew 26. Jesus certainly, in the Lord's Supper, had the coming kingdom in view and a reunion in view with His own. And Jesus was giving everything. He was giving up His life for them. Matthew twenty six twenty six. As they were eating, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and said, Give gave it to the disciples, said, Take eat, this is my body. He took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, drink ye all of it, for this is the blood of the New Testament which is shed for many for the remissions of sins. Whose blood was it? His blood. Now I've given blood before, but not like he gave it. This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So even when Jesus was given the most, he was thinking of ahead and what that was going to come back for him when he shed his blood. And we were redeemed not with silver and gold from our vain manner of life, but with the precious blood of Christ. As a lamb without blemish and without spot, slain before the foundation of the world. He planned to do it. He did it. And we're celebrating it. And if he can give that and look forward to being in the kingdom with those for whom he died, we can look forward to our little investments of time, of money, in people. And look forward to seeing them in a better world. There's a song on the internet. Some of you have heard it before. It's a Getty song. You, we know we haven't sung this. I would love to have sung this, but we don't have it in our hymn book. We've got some Getty songs in the hymn book. My worth is not in what I own. 
not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly words of love at the cross. My worth, my worth is not not in skill or name. My worth is not in skill or name. In win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust Him, no other. My soul is satisfied in Him alone. As summer flowers, we fade and die. Fame and youth and beauty uh, go by, but life eternal calls to us at the cross. I will not tr- boast in I will not boast in wealth or might or human's wisdom's fleeting light, but I will boast in knowing Christ at the cross. To wonders here that I confess my worth and my unworthiness my worth and my unworthiness my value fixed my ransom paid at the cross. Our worth comes not from what we have, but who has us. People say of rich people, how much does he got? Well, if he died, he's got nothing. His heirs got it. Our worth comes not from what we have, but who as us. That's my statement, not theirs. It's not in what we can buy, it's in who bought us. As we come to the Lord's Supper, we have worth. We are more value than many sparrows, we're more value than um, ravens and lilies. We are of value. One, because we're made in the image of God, but two, because we're bought with the blood of Christ. Let's not try to compete with the world on this other stuff. We don't want to live like them. We can afford not to. And we don't want to be necessarily known for the things the world wants to be known for. They count that success. It's a false definition. May God help us to be willing to be the kind of givers that our Lord wants here. And He came to give us life and give it abundantly. This isn't going to, this is not going to depreciate our life here. It's going to enhance it. The happiest people I know have been people who sacrifice so that God's kingdom can go forward. And what a blessing it is. Well, as we come to the table of the Lord, May we remember our Lord gave not just His, did not just leave heaven and become a carpenter. He went to the cross for you and me. He could not give more than He gave. These are His words. And this is how He lived. And this is how He died. But He did that because of the joy that was set before Him. And may we do it as well as God gives us opportunity. Father, as we come to the Lord's table and we remember thanking you for your unspeakable gift, thanking Jesus for who who he is and what he has done, we rejoice and thank you. And... uh, We thank you for what the birds teach us and the lilies teach us. We thank you for what Jesus teaches us about life, how it's to be lived and how to have the abundant life here as well as an abundant life in the next world. We're not saved by what we give. We're saved by what he gave. And that was everything. His blood his body and his blood that we celebrate now. And we thank you for our time here. If there's anybody that's not yet saved, may today be the day 
they would come to this Savior who has such insight into life and has such beauty in the way he conducted his life and who died a horrible death that we might have riches for all eternity. His name we pray.